This is the Education Gadfly Show. Checker and always chuckles when I say I wanted to be a little bit older before I became a voice of history in this work. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-hosts, the Adele and Beyonce of Education Reform, Suzanne Tatsny Kubak and Alyssa Schwenk. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Hi, Alyssa. I feel like you've called me that before. I thought I called you uh, Adele before. The Suzanne's I, Adele today. You get to be. I Beyonce. get to be Beyonce. I'll be. I'm good with being Beyonce. Yeah. And Suzanne, welcome. Thank you for having me. And I'll take either Adele or Beyonce. Yeah. I've never been called either one. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yes. Uh, even even Adele thought that Beyonce should have. She won should have won. She was robbed. Words. Okay. Hey, everybody. If you don't know, Suzanne is executive director of the Pi Network. Now, here's the thing. Pi is not actually about Pi, though we have tricked many people into coming to our conferences by thinking that is the case. Suzanne, tell us what is the Pi Network? First of all, what does that stand for? P-I-E. Policy Innovators in Education, okay. as American as Apple Pie. Very nice. And it's a network. <laughs> it's a network of 77 organizations from 34 wow. states and D.C. with a, almost 20 now policy partners from across the ideological spectrum mm -hmm. who agree on a broad set of values and beliefs for uh, reforming education, but not always, as you know, from as one of our co-founders on the deep details, which yeah. is what makes it a rich yeah. group yeah. of folks. I mean, th this is basically education reforms, big tent, uh, kind of an umbrella mm -hmm. group to bring these folks together a few times a year and talk about how things are going, strategy, tactics, policy. Mm -hmm. uh, what's amazing, as you said, so we now have education reform organizations in 34 states plus D.C. And they're all organizations working at the state level. In their states, they're often networks of their, in their own right, bringing together leading citizens and um, people who are interested in improving education in their states, yep. backed by local leadership and um, similar investments from uh, local community folks. What I've always loved about working with Pi Network groups is everyone sort of has this like roll up their sleeves ethos towards policy where everyone's in it really for, I would say, like pretty pure reasons. And it's for the kids and it's for improving their local communities. And it's not you were on this side, you're on this side. It's if you'll work with us, like we'll work with you and kind of bringing everyone together. Yeah. And, and look, it's, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, most of these groups did did not exist. You know, there were some early ones like Advance Illinois, like mm -hmm. uh, the original ConCan, which has now become 50Can, Stanford Children. Uh, now we've got, you know, Tennessee Score. Of course, there's Fordham's Ohio team. Mm -hmm. We've got EdTrust West and Midwest and many, many more all over the country. And, and these are not groups that are acting as think tanks, putting out papers. These are groups that get in there and lobby. They have an advocacy agenda every year that they try to push. Mm -hmm. uh, around charter schools or accountability or teacher quality or school finance. And, uh, you know, oftentimes opposed by the teachers unions, but not always. Uh, but but with this notion that a certain Secretary DeVos uh, used to talk about that, you know, we weren't <laughs> going to win this debate just writing op-eds, uh, though that's what I do. You for do it really well, Mike. Thank you, that we actually had to get out there and, and get involved in the, the dirty uh, world of policy and politics. Uh, and that's what these groups do. And, and Suzanne tries to help them do it better. Well, and the spirit, as, as Alyssa said, the spirit of the network is many understand that they're in this work for the long haul and that there's know-how and resources that what happens in their states can be shared across state lines to make the work easier, the lifting easier for other people. All right. So let, let's talk about how things are going right now. This is a tricky time for many of these organizations, of course. So let's talk about it in Ed Reform Update. 
So let's talk about how things are going out there, Suzanne. At the state level, of course, as everybody knows, the Republican Party, dominant though it is in Washington, is even more dominant at the state level right now. You've got something like two-thirds of the states uh, that where the legislature is controlled by Republicans, two-thirds of the states where the governor is Republican. I think half the states where it's all, you know, both houses of the legislature plus the governor are Republicans. And then a handful, really, less than a hand, I think four states that are all blue. Um, and yet the cities where a lot of the kids are who uh, education reformers are most concerned about are deep, deep blue. And so somehow you have to patch together strange coalitions in order to you know, pass laws <laughs> at the state level, which are largely Republican, serving families and communities in the cities that are heavily Democratic. How on earth are these members navigating this, Suzanne? Well, it's uh, easy in most immediate world to think everything is strange and new. But in, in mm-hmm. fact, at the state level, political uh, dynamics tip and teeter a lot more regularly than we see at the federal level. And so one of the shared bits of wisdom in state level advocacy is that you always want to stay nimble. Most organizations are smart about building their boards of directors and their advisory groups in ways that always have bipartisan mm-hmm. uh, reach within them and bipartisan mm-hmm. thinkers so that they stay nimble and uh, always have the appearance of always working across the political spectrum. Now, this is certainly the, over the last 12 months been a difficult time for education mm-hmm. reform, you know, <clears throat> partly because of the bigger politics going on in our country, the crazy 2016 campaign and election, but, but also because We've been kind of sniping at each other, you know. Uh, we've certainly been a part of it here at Fordham, but really, uh, it's sniping over things around, you know, differences on ideology, on politics, on race, on many of those issues. Mm-hmm. How how do you see this? I mean, is is this all just noise that us in DC like to chatter, and and the people at the state level can just ignore it, or does it have an impact on them? Oh gosh, uh, I, there's layers and layers of to answer that question. <laughs> well, and the first is Checker Finn always chuckles when I say I want it to be a little bit older before I became a voice of history in this work. But mm-hmm. I would argue that the last eight years have been easier in ed reform than have been true in my career because we've had this very unusual leadership at the national level of a president who reached for a controversial secretary and then appointed a second controversial secretary who was far more amenable to the reform community than he was to the president's own party. And that's a fairly unusual tap. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's given us a lot more comfort in the reform world, which is, I think, why there's been a lot more ideological squabbling. Um, What we saw, Mike, when you and I both were starting PI in the early days was a very pragmatic and kind of heads down, nose to the grindstone work ethic within the advocacy sector of people who were working in very sparse environments, very few allies and just gutting it out. Mm-hmm. And I think we've just had, a, we've got a lot more people in the tent. And mm-hmm. so I think that's why things have gotten noisy. Mm-hmm. We also have a lot more pundits. And so I affectionately call the chattering class that can, with less consequence, you know, talk openly on air in forums like this about <laughs> what they think others ought to do. And the folks mm-hmm. who are working at the state level are much more quiet because they're out there doing the work. So I do think there is mm-hmm. a much noisier layer of conversation than I would have seen back in my day. That seems to coincide a lot with the rise of Twitter as a medium. That's Just fair. throwing fair that enough. out there. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Yes. Fair enough. Ba- bad for our national politics. Bad for education <laughs> reform. Is that it? But Maybe. it's also, it's not unusual for there to be a big dust up in the mm-hmm. kind of inner beltway conversation that 
that I'll just be on the phone go. with state folks who are saying yeah. what is either what's going on or I didn't even know that was happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe a little bit of who are these crazy people out there in DC. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. I'd never even thought of it as as the education reform movement has gotten more comfortable. That gives us this space to bump elbows over some of these ideological differences that it's not just. Right. right. When you are getting threats from the outside. Existential threat, then you tend to rally together more mm-hmm. uh, maybe than than when you don't. Of course, a lot of people right now are feeling existentially threatened. Uh, by the current administration. So that's putting people on edge as well. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think the other thing though is is possibly that we're just not sure what what's next. I mean, there was an agenda in recent years that was pretty clear. You know, many of these groups are working mm-hmm. on on Common Core, first adopting it, then defending it and implementing it. Uh, that's been a big part of the work. Uh, a lot of people pushing for high quality charter schools, both expanding charters, also bringing quality reforms mm-hmm. like we worked on in Ohio, our great team there in Columbus. You know, there was the teacher evaluation thing that, uh, in my opinion, I'm glad has come and gone. Uh, <laughs> but it's a little unclear. People say, you know, what's next? I mean, yeah, you know, implementing ESSA. But uh, in terms of the next big thing, I don't think it's a problem that there's not a next big thing right now. I think we got to finish what we started, you know, especially, especially, hey, implement these standards, you know, get really good curriculum in place, do what Louisiana's done and actually make sure the teachers have mastered uh, the standards and have a great aligned curriculum. Uh, I mean, a lot of good work to be done with that, but it does lead to maybe more squabbling because, uh, you know, we're, we're just not sure what the, you know, what, what the cause is that we're all supporting. No, I mean, I, yes and no, I say certainly like we're, kind of through, and this is from a fairly limited perspective, like we've had a lot of big battles. Those have kind of been fought and won. ESSA has been reauthorized. That was at least in DC, something huge that people were working on. Um, And so now we're in kind of the tougher nitty gritty, like curriculum reform, like DCPS is doing a ton around it. And there are some states, New York and Gage had a really great curriculum, but that's a really like tough and wonky. And I hate the term, but unsexy Mm -hmm. aspect of reform. Um, So we've got that. But on the other hand, like there are fewer clear cut North Stars that we as an ed reform community can rally around these days. All right. But speaking of sexy, the big sexy right now is $20 billion school choice proposal, which we expect to be coming soon. Uh, Suzanne, what what advice would you give to to Secretary DeVos about how she might engage these Pi Network groups when she rolls out this proposal? I mean, let's imagine that the proposal, and we don't know this yet, but let's imagine that it, it depends on some kind of state action. That basically, if it's a tax credit thing for scholarships, for vouchers, it relies on states enacting their own tax credit scholarship program. That may not be the case, but mm-hmm. let's say it does. And, you know, here are these reform groups out there, uh, you know, who could be encouraged to participate in, in, in you know. In this conversation. Yeah, yeah. In, in advocating for this. What, what should she say to them? Well, first of all, I'll reach back to lessons I learned humbly and the hard way working in a place not quite as big as the entire country, but one of the biggest reform environments in the country, California, Yeah, mm-hmm. where, and this will give you some sense of just how old I am, back when California was passing the baton between uh, blue and red governors. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, uh, for a moment, had a policymaking environment that was all blue state, but with a reform-minded governor who appointed mm-hmm. a very strong state board of ed. And so b- bottom line, we could do things fast and quickly, mm-hmm. which we did and didn't mm-hmm. build a lot of buy-in. And we had policy, reform policy on the books in California in code that many people don't even believe ever existed because it was as wiped out as quickly as it came. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, so the lesson is, what would, I, what would I suggest to Secretary DeVos or anybody, even new leadership at the state level, when you're in an environment where it feels like you've, you can run for the 
you know, the end zone mm-hmm. with abandon, you, you tend to want to move fast and quick and think you can put a whole bunch of stuff in place. But as hard as passing policy is, that's the easy part. And the hard mm-hmm. part is implementing things. And what we've learned, those of us who've been at this a while, is that we need bipartisan commitment uh, because things take a much longer time to implement and to sustain over the long time. Mm-hmm. And to get something from the federal government all the way to a classroom in yeah. Peoria or uh, Poughkeepsee mm-hmm. or any place in the middle of the country is going to be more than a four or five yeah. year effort. No, that's yeah. so that's so true. And you, and you look at the states, by the way, that have shown big improvement over time. You know, Massachusetts for a while and still to some degree, mm-hmm. Tennessee more recently. There are places that have DC, DC. Well, it's not a state, but, state, okay. but stable leadership is yes. the bottom yeah. line. Stable leadership, but also a, a coherent strategy, bipartisan leadership. I mean, they've gone through transitions in governors and, and uh, mayors mm-hmm. and kept the progress going. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. And you're right. Uh, it, it was because there was some mechanism to get people together, at least in a broad centrist coalition with a vision, oftentimes with the support of outside organizations that are members of Pinet mm-hmm. to stay the course. And and that's what we need. Yeah, and reaching out for that kind of um, coalition building takes effort. And then in an environment where it seems like, wow, we've just won the day and everybody around us is like-minded, it can be seductive to think, let's just pass a lot of policy fast. But those instincts need to be cautioned with, you know, the the need for building unusual coalitions Mm -hmm. and reaching out to folks building strong relationships as broadly as possible to make yeah. sure things sustain over time. Mm-hmm. All right. Suzanne Tatchney, Kubak, thanks so much for coming. Did I say that right? Kubach? Nope. Kubak? <laughs> You're not even getting Tashney right. Suzanne Tashney for the oh, soft CH. It's, it's a French Tashney. I never knew that. And a German Kubak. So Suzanne Tashney Kubak. Oh my gosh. Suzanne <laughs> Tashney Kubak. How long have I known you? And I keep butchering two, that. Two CHs. Too long. Two Thanks so much for it. coming. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show, Amber. Thank you, Mike. You know, we talked about the Grammys earlier, mm-hmm. but of course, coming up this weekend, the, the Oscars. Oscars. Have you Indeed. seen any of the movies, Amber? I, let me think. What, what's up? Tell me what's up. Oh, my gosh. I'm woefully behind on my Oscars what? knowledge. I know. I know. <laughs> I, hit, hidden, last, figures. hidden figures. Um, okay. La La Land, which I am in the haters club. Uh, Moonlight, which I thought was very good. Um, okay. So, so far, I've only seen Hidden Figures. Manchester was, by the Sea. Didn't see that either. Um Arrival, which Brandon, mm-hmm. I know, really likes. It's I think I've seen one. most of the animated films yeah. that are nominated. Yeah, that's, a, yeah, that, that's, quite that's an the category that Well, uh, I, I saw Secret Life of Pets. Is that up for anything? Uh, I don't think it got I nominated. Secret Life of I Pets. Think it's it's Zootopia. Zootopia is supposed to win that category. And, oh, no, okay. no, no, no. Oh. It should be the one with the two strings. The ropes. Uh, the red know. rope or whatever. Oh, red rope. What are you th- about? You've discussed this one before. Uh, why am I forgetting the name of it? You played no. an instrument or something? Yeah, no. it's, uh, it's Kubo and the two strings. Ah, okay. okay. Right. I didn't close. see that. <laughs> it was fun. But, you know. Yeah, yeah. But Secret Life of Pets, come on. That was that was too. I did. I enjoyed it. Missed really that one too. See, I'm like anyway, well, all TV That's my vote. And, and A Hidden Figures was great too. Yeah. So. so good. All right, all right, Amber. What you got? We got a new study that examines the effects of changing tenure policy in Louisiana. So in 2012, Louisiana passed a law that made tenure contingent on how a teacher performed on what? 
first evaluation, right? Mm -hmm. Evaluation measure. Um, They call the effectiveness measure COMPASS in Louisiana. The law extended the time to tenure and made tenure status contingent upon the performance on COMPASS. Okay? For new teachers. So, well, for untenured teachers, as of of 2012-2013, tenure would be granted only after a teacher received a highly effective COMPASS rating for five out of six consecutive years. Mm -hmm. So, you got to stick around. Okay. That's a while. But there wasn't anything about taking... Well, I'll I'll just be quiet. (laughs) Also, for any teacher with tenure already, Mm -hmm. or you get it in the future, tenure status is revoked... If a teacher is rated ineffective once, mm-hmm. and then that teacher has to regain tenure by receiving consecutive highly effective oh, ratings again. So this is okay. a, lot, a lot like Colorado 191. Had something yeah. in it for the tenure teachers too. Okay. Analysts use teacher employment records specifically. They're looking at summer exits from the period before this reform, 26, 2011 compared to teacher exits for two years after the reform, 2012-13. Analysts can attempt to control for other things that might also be responsible for a change in exit rates, Mm -hmm. like the aging workforce, like Mm -hmm. more challenging working conditions, like Common Core Mm -hmm. (laughs) also (laughs) happened, um, by comparing teachers with similar characteristics and trying to see whether these other policies lined up to the timing of the reform change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard to do okay it's How really it's nearly for... if you ask me it's nearly impossible to control for everything else that might be going on at the same mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. that said budget cuts also at budget one point. cuts yeah here are the findings number one after the reform the overall teacher exit rate for all traditional public school teachers uh increased by 1.5 percentage points mm-hmm. they estimate in raw numbers that that equates to 1500 to 1700 who left in the first two years after the 10-year reform mm-hmm Number two, effects were greatest for teachers who were eligible for retirement with immediate full pension benefits. Mm -hmm. They were the teachers who tended to have at least 25 years in. Mm -hmm. Number three, the increase in teacher exits was highest in schools with the lowest standardized test scores. Mm -hmm. So schools with a letter grade of F saw exits increase from 7.4 to Mm 9.4%, while A-rated schools saw no change. And finally, number four, exits for fourth-year teachers this is, again, the year that normally you'd get tenure, right, mm-hmm. before the tenure mm-hmm. law, because three years mm-hmm. you're in, then fourth year, you get it. Um, jumped 3.6 percentage points after the reform. Huh. So these are, the, mm-hmm. again, the teachers that were presumably most impacted. Uh, the biggest issue, again, I think, is that they weren't able to control for these other things. Yeah. Um, not, you know, I mean, you just can't. Uh, common core implementation. Mm-hmm. They also apparently had a change in their pension system where... Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what it was, but some parallel change that might have incentivized teachers to retire yep. early mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and they also, huge, they don't have effectiveness data. Oh. Oh, so okay. we don't know whether the teachers who are leaving are the least effective teachers or not. It's like they stole my first question. Yeah. that b- Because if they were ineffective, then we're happy yeah. that they left. Sayonara. Right. Uh, so we have no idea if this is a positive or negative thing on the quality of the workforce. That seems like a big question. It is. I'm oh. hoping because Catherine Strong is one of her eeps, Yeah. And she was the lead uh, investigator here. I'm hoping that they're going to go back and look at that question. And But it, by saying that we do know that the schools that were low performing tended to see more teachers exiting. And so right. it certainly is possible, possible. that those, yeah. I mean, those schools are likely 
almost for sure to have more ineffective right. teachers. Right. Yeah. Also, did the compass evaluations, like it's an evaluation system. So presumably there are our teacher rankings somewhere that yeah. we could. Right. But I read up. Matt Barnum's write up because I was curious mm-hmm. what his takeaway was. Um, and apparently he interviewed Catherine Strong and, and they are still getting really high ratings on mm-hmm. compass, you know, mm-hmm. so they're still not getting their differentiation. Another thing they brought up in there is that the teachers who are about to retire and get immediate pension benefits. I mean, presumably they're the ones that would be least impacted, right? By this Mm -hmm. reform anyway. Maybe it was, uh, I wondered about that. My like immediate thought was it was like, this is another layer of, you know, paperwork or bureaucracy or whatever. Like we've got Mm -hmm. our full punch in. Let's just Mm -hmm. cut our losses and go. Right. It is so hard to figure this out. I mean, because look, if, if the goal is get rid of ineffective teachers or teachers who just don't buy in, to the notion that student achievement is sort of the big thing we're all after, then again, fine, see ya. On the other hand, you know, if you've got good teachers who any of us would go into their classroom, they're doing great stuff Mm -hmm. and they don't trust the compass system or they think Mm -hmm. it's all, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, bureaucrats in Baton Rouge, you know, coming up with crazy stuff. I mean, then that's a problem. We just, again, we, we don't know. I mean, and and so, yeah, it raises a lot of questions, but look, I, I'm, I'm, I, I am at least cautiously optimistic that this is showing that if, you know, you, you can nudge some teachers out. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the time to do it is before, especially the part where it's about new teachers. You know, mm-hmm. do not give them tenure. If you want right. to keep a tenure system, okay, but mm-hmm. do not give somebody tenure automatically. Right, right. Well, in the case of D.C., which is another thing that was brought up, you know, at least there, you know, we've seen that they've been able to get mm-hmm. rid of some of these lefts or effective yeah. teachers. Yeah. yeah, And they've got a pipeline of effective teachers yeah. in the waiting, waiting the weeks. Mm-hmm. Because by the way, they get a nice performance bonus and they get paid, you know, pretty, pretty well in DC. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, that's not the case everywhere. So, you know, and, and Catherine makes the point, look, you know, if, if we're going to have this level of turnover yeah. um, and presumably if some of them are least effective, then let's yeah. be able to incentivize, you know, the higher performing mm-hmm. teachers yeah. to, to get in there. So. Hey, let's yep. point out Louisiana highest, uh, m- most gains, at least at the fourth grade level of any state on the latest state. Oh, nice. Doing yeah. something right. So they are doing something right indeed. All right. Yes. Well, good, good stuff. Thank you, Amber. Yes, and indeed. I'm impressed too. This was hot off the presses. Wow. I'm like speed reading half hour ago. <laughs> yeah. like, ah, let me read it but, quickly. But uh, hey, you know, Doug Harris and his team there at Tulane can Continue to crank out cool stuff. Yes, absolutely. Kudos to them. All right. Hey, that is all the time we've got for this week's show. Until next week. I'm Alyssa Schwenk. And I'm Mike Pichilli, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.